We are in Isaiah this morning. We are finishing our study of Isaiah. And I think it's valuable for us as we go into these closing chapters today to think about, again, the historical setting, not, not in detail, but just to refresh ourselves on, on what Isaiah is facing and what the people are facing. Isaiah is for us, as we read it now, it has been wonderfully encouraging, speaking toward this message of a glorious future when people from every tongue and nation and ethnicity gather to worship Yahweh. This worship, as we've seen in Isaiah, is rooted in one who is called the servant, whom God is sending, and who will be like a lamb led to the slaughter, who will take upon himself the sins of his people, and he will save them and make them righteous. And so there's, there's much in Isaiah that has encouraged us that has given us hope again, rooted in Scripture and in the Gospel. But it's worth remembering as we come to these last chapters, we who are so used to Hollywood's propensity for happy endings, where where we finish up and say, ah, that was sweet, that was wonderful. I mean, maybe if it's a little bit of a cliffhanger, we want a part two, but we, we generally want a happy ending. And it's worth remembering that Isaiah is living in 700 B.C., The nation around him is hard-hearted in its rebellion. He has been ministering at this point, and maybe it's 690 BC at this point. He's been ministering over the course of roughly 30 years over the reigns of these kings. And the people have acted repeatedly as if they could manipulate the Lord. They have looked more to the nations around them to, to borrow from patterns of worship than they have listened to the prophet who has urged them to obey the Lord. Uh, The immediate future, Isaiah knows because God has already spoken through him, the immediate future is things will get worse, is there will continue to be sin and rebellion that will ultimately bring them to a place of captivity. The Babylonians will come and take them into captivity. So if you are Isaiah, as much as you know what's being promised and you can see that at a distance, you are also in a, a bleak time. And so... We see Isaiah pouring forth with good news, and we know that this prophecy is fulfilled in part at the first coming of Jesus Christ, its ultimate fulfillment in in his return, and and we, we glory in that, we take joy in that, but Isaiah is serving during evil days to people who almost unanimously rejected what he preached, and that sad reality will be evident all the way down through the very last verse of the book of Isaiah when we get there. And and if you've read ahead, you you know that it ends on just a very bleak note. And again, I think that's why it's important for us to remember what's happening in Isaiah's day. Things are not going to go well. So much of what we'll see again this morning is just this return to harsh reality, to warnings of God's judgment, and then glimmers of hope messages of hope, reminders that there is hope and there is repentance, and while we breathe, there is still opportunity to turn to the Savior. There's structure to this whole last section, and I've I've mentioned it before and just want to be a little bit more explicit this morning, and you see sort of a triangle pyramid kind of structure. If you think of it kind of as an archway, chapters 
56 to 66, these last 11 chapters. And, and virtually all the scholars who've studied Isaiah say that there really is this, it, it, we're not manufacturing sort of an imposing on the, the text, this structure. This really is very much a, a, a Hebrew kind of structure in poetry where you are saying something and you're building to a, a central point and then what you say on the other side of that almost mirrors what you said on the first half. It's all to, to draw attention to this center point. And so that's what you're seeing. If you think of it as an archway, as you walk to this sort of ornate archway, your eyes generally are drawn to the top of the archway and, and to the artwork there. And, and so what this passage is doing, this whole section is drawing us to chapter 60 through 62. Those are the ones we've looked at over the last two weeks. Isaiah chapter 60, um, arise, shine, lift up your eyes, see what God has done. Uh, Isaiah 61, reciting the, the very words that Jesus begins his public ministry with, that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor. And then we looked at Isaiah 62 last week and just that exposition of what that good news looks like for those who are desolate, those who are enslaved, those who are broken. And, and so that's, that's the center point, seeing the, the coming of Christ and the hope of the gospel as being the, the sort of peak in that. And now with chapter 63, we sort of start down the other side and we mirror some of the things we saw before that. For instance, as you see, the warrior. The warrior that we saw in chapter 59, remember you're standing on the city walls and this warrior is coming from the direction of the evil city of Edom and he is covered in garments that are spattered in blood. Uh, actually, that's 63. That's what we looked at last, uh, last week. If you look back at 56, it, it's the picture of 59. I'll get it right. 59, it's the glorious warrior who dons the armor and comes to defeat the enemy of sin. That was the, the, the kind of the high point in that chapter as we see this helplessness of the people in defeating sin. And this warrior comes and says, there's, there's no one else here. I will do this. I will put on this warrior. And so now in 63, that warrior reappeared and we see him stained with the blood of unrepentant enemies. And then we turn to a theme as we continue on that we saw in chapters 56 through 68, where God commands his people to live righteously Live out who you are as, as people that are supposed to be the people of God, and yet the people's struggle and failure to do so. And we'll see this again in chapters 63 and 64 from the perspective of the people. And this, is, this will be largely Isaiah speaking in 63 and 64. He's interceding on behalf of a people who are struggling to obey, who are failing in their obedience. And then 65, in the beginning of 66, you'll get God's response to that, to this call to be obedient and to live righteously, and yet the failure, and it will come with warnings and appeals. At the very end of the book, the end of chapter 66, it mirrors where we were in chapter 56, which started with this miraculous influx of Gentiles into the family of God, this this realization that it's not just a Jewish God, but that it is a God who calls the nations to come to him. And where we began in this section in 56, we will end in 66, again with a glorious picture of what is to come. God wants his people, ultimately, to see that the pinnacle is the coming of the servant, there's hope and there's salvation, and he wants them now to live righteously so that they would have an impact on the nations around them so that they, the, the others would see the glory of God through them and be drawn to him and worship him.
And so there are important lessons in these final chapters. I think most of all, the, the, the thing that we will see this morning is these appeals and these warnings when God speaks in 65 and 66. And God appeals to them to be obedient. And he warns them if they are not. And he then ties that to the new heavens and the new earth. He says there is coming a, a, a fulfillment of a promise that the end will come and there will be new heavens and a new earth. Therefore, what you do with these warnings and with these appeals will have eternal consequences. So I want to pick up in Isaiah 63, verse 7. I can tell you right now, in case you're wondering, we won't read Every verse from 63.7 all the way to the end of 66, we'll try to hit enough so that you get the, the overall thrust, but that's, I wanted you to just kind of see the map of where we're going in terms of this section. But 63, let's read verses 7 through 9 just to start with, and I would just draw your attention to the, the first key statement here. This is Isaiah speaking, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Key word that sort of governs this, this section from verse 7 down through 14 is recount. Isaiah says, I'm, I'm going to call to mind some things. I, I want to remember what the Lord has done. We, we see this so often in the Old Testament from the prophets as they say, look back and remember God's ways, memorialize what he's done and this is something you and I should be doing. This is why we, we, we are, by nature, forgetters. And that's why we go back and we read the scripture and we read the stories and we're reminded of God's power and his goodness because we have to recount these things. We have to bring to mind again his loving kindness. How have I seen his faithfulness? Not only in the, the truths of scripture, but how have I seen his steadfast love? How have I experienced that? And those are things we, like Isaiah, should be joyous to do, to recount, to remember. God has been steadfast to his people. And, and no verse summarizes that more beautifully than verse 9, when it says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. The CSB says it this way, in all their suffering, he suffered. What, what does that mean? He's talking clearly here in the context of, of the remnant of his people. And, and what, he's, what he's saying is that when God judges his people, when their rebellion results in punishment, be it, and, and he'll allude to it, be it the wandering in the wilderness. They cannot enter the promised land because of disobedience. Be it being scattered by their enemies. Be it captivity in Babylon. When God punishes in this way, we must never imagine God as vengeful or uncaring or calloused toward them. God is never in heaven saying, now you finally got it. You see who's boss? You see, I told you. I told you so, right? That, that if you did this, this is what would happen. That is not God's attitude. And verse 9 is intended to communicate that, that God, God experiences the suffering of his people. He is grieved even as he is rightly judging them for their sin. He is not doing it with joy. Even though he is carrying out justice, there is still a sense of grief in that. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus, our high priest, is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Our God has compassion for his people. He takes no joy in your suffering. God is grieving with you. Even though the eternal sovereign God is at work in your suffering for your good and for his glory, his attitude toward you is still one of genuine compassion. Even when you are suffering from the consequences of your own sin. The picture in verse 9 is of God as if he's suffering alongside, even in disciplining us. He does so as children because he loves us. If you've disciplined your children and you strive to do it, Biblically and correctly, you know that, that it's not a joyful experience, it's a sober experience. And it's one in which you, your, your desire is for their best, to help, to correct, to, to bring about change, to bring about um, righteousness. And, and, and it's a difficult thing, and God is reflected here in verse 9, uh, again, as his mercy is shown even in correction. Verses 10 through 14 continue this theme, Isaiah's recounting. Remembering how God, with his strong arm, delivers the descendants of Abraham from Egypt, from slavery there, through the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. It describes him as leading them in such a way that they do not even stumble. And this recalling of God's deliverance now is purposeful for Isaiah. Why is he, what comes of this recounting, of this remembrance? And what comes of it is a plea. As I have recounted what you have done, and I look at where we are, I am praying for you to do something miraculous. I am praying for you to intervene and do something supernatural. And so if you look down at verse 15, Isaiah interceding for his people says, look down from heaven. These are imperative sort of verbs. This is Isaiah pleading with God. Look down from heaven and see. Remember just a few chapters back, it was to us, look up and see what I have done. Lift your eyes and see. And now here's Isaiah almost rehearsing back to God. Please look down on us and see from your holy, beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. And this, this starts this line of questioning. We would describe it as lament. Kind of careful, sort of, when, when done right in terms of the pattern that we see here, the Psalms and Lamentations, we would see lament as sort of a sanctified complaining. It is, it is asking God honest questions, that, that we feel distant from him, that we wonder where he is. God, do you see this? Do you see this mess that we're in? In fact, they say in these verses, we, we are from the line of Abraham and Jacob, but we are, you are our father. We are your children. Can you not see this? Can you not look on this? We know that you have compassion. And so can you not look on this and act? I would, I would suggest to you there's echoes of the, the Old Testament prophet, uh, prophet Habakkuk, where it's like, Lord, do you see the sin of our people? What will you do about this? How will you intervene? And so verse 17 O oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return, another imperative, Isaiah to God, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. There's a sense in which we read that and we want to say, hey, Isaiah, that's, you're right on the edge there, bud. You know, that's, that's a little strong in terms of you speaking to God in this way, and yet it, it's not... He's not speaking apart from truth. The Bible does speak of God hardening hearts. It's often as an act of final judgment. 
It's very clear here, and, and, and as we go on in Isaiah, we'll see that he's, he's understanding the people's responsibility in all this. He's not saying, God, our sin is your fault. It's clear from Isaiah that the people's condition are a consequence of and a judgment for their sin. And Isaiah knew this. This was in the job description. Remember the Isaiah 6 the, the, the entrance into the, the dwelling place of God, and he is in that, that, that scene where he sees God in all of his glory, and he is commissioned into service. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here am I, send me. And, and what does God say to him? As you preach, it, it, will, it will be as if it builds up resistance in the people. You will preach to a stubborn, stiff-necked people. They, they will not Yield, And in chapter 64, Isaiah really is confessing that that is now the case. That, that as he is approaching the very end of his prophetic ministry, even having known what he knew at the beginning, this is still difficult. This is still decades of labor to people that you are longing for repentance and revival and change. And it's getting worse and it's going to. And so in Isaiah 64, if you look down at verse 6, if there's any question that Isaiah understands who ultimately is responsible here, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. There's that statement about our, even the things that we say are righteous if you're not trusting in Christ, still like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind just take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. There's a mix here of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and Isaiah is not shirking the responsibility. We are not waking up longing to seize hold, to lay hold of you, to know you. And, and so we're suffering for it, and we're justly suffering. There's no question here about guilt or responsibility. He's not making excuses. But it is stirring in him what, what it should stir in us, even as we look at the world around us. And that is a longing to plead to God to do what only he can, and that is to intercede in a way that he would break into history in a way that, that is beyond anything we could imagine, and bring change. And if you go back to just verse 1 of this chapter, Isaiah 64, look at his plea here. Oh, that you would split open, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Have you ever thought, Something like what Isaiah is saying here. God, if you would just, if you would just open up the skies and say, here I am, what, what you've heard is true. Oh, you know, it would just, it would do such a wondrous work. And yet he also portrays the reality that, that if he comes, it will also be in judgment. One commentator on verse two says this. He says, the desire for God to rend the heavens and come down is right and good as long as we recognize that were it not for the blood of Jesus, we would all be the brushwood that would be ignited. We would be the water that would boil. It's a, it's a plea for God to come 
and to work mightily, but it's also the recognition that when he does, there will still be enormous, enormous resistance, enormous stubbornness and sin, and that will mean judgment. What Isaiah 64, 2 describes is a God so great that his appearance shakes the earth and so holy that when he comes in the midst of sin-filled humanity, it brings by necessity his righteous wrath and judgment. So it's, it's a daring prayer in some sense, and yet it's the plea of Isaiah's heart that there would be a revival of sorts. This is why we need Jesus. Psalm 130, verse 2 says, If God were to keep a record of wrongs, none of us could stand, none could remain. The record has to be nailed to the cross. The, the, the massive debt of our sin must be canceled at the cross. Otherwise, the, the coming of God is, is like setting brushwood afire, that it's setting its ablaze. His lament ends with the last half of chapter 64. Take some bits and pieces of it, but one worth seeing here really is verse 8, just to get the imagery that, that Isaiah uses, because we've seen it before. But now, O Lord... You are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We've seen pottery imagery before in Isaiah, and, and what it was, the clay and the, and the maker, it was idolaters. Remember, the, the portrait was given of those who would take clay and make gods out of it. And Isaiah is confessing what is true. No, God, you make us from the dust of the earth. You are the ultimate potter. That, that what you do is real and you have made us. And really, he's, what he's saying, and then in the verses that follow, the reason he's bringing up this imagery is, Lord, you've made us. And so don't abandon us. Don't, don't leave your creation. Don't form this, this creation in your image and then leave it in the wilderness as the chapter comes to an end, he says, Lord, how can, you, how can you hold back from coming to us or speaking to us? The, the gist of Isaiah's lament and Isaiah's prayer here is, Lord, I know. I know we are failing miserably. I know that you're not finding righteousness anywhere in the land. Could you just come and deliver us? Could you just come and change us? Could you just come and, and, and do something that, that's miraculous and just, just fix this? You, you get this. You, I, I say to you again why the historical setting is so important. This is a, a guy who has served with his whole being for 30-some years, and he's seeing no evident fruit, if you will. And he's just, Lord, at this point, could you just... Just change us. Have you, have you ever thought exactly this? Isaiah is voicing things that we've, we've all done at one time or another. When you, you struggle with some habitual sin, God, just change me. I, I'm, I'm weary of this. Just, just take this away. Just, just cancel this desire. Just, just zap me in some way and, and, and take it away because otherwise I just feel hopeless. To be sure, God is transforming us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it to completion. But the, the process of change, a process we call sanctification, is one of the things that's clear in Scripture is a cooperative process. It is the work of the Lord 
to will and to accomplish his good purposes in us, but we are to strive, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We, we are not helpless and stuck in our sins saying, God, you're just going to zap this away. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He pictures the Christian life as a, as a running race as something that requires discipline and effort. Running races are not easy. I didn't appreciate that until I first started watching my daughter run marathons, and she would compete in these events, and, and maybe I shared it before, but I would, would ask her, what, what would be helpful to you to yell to you? You know, we're standing on the sidelines, and you're in this marathon. Hey, go, Bethany, yay! Would there be something else? Could I tell you, like, where the next competitor is or your time? No, I, I've got all that. Just, just say, don't be a baby. And you want to feel like a lousy parent. Stand out in public along a street when a young woman who has run for two hours straight and still has five miles to go and has run her guts out and you yell, don't be a baby. And you know people are looking at you like, wow, you are just something. The Christian life is endurance. And, and, and lovingly, brothers and sisters, we, we need to do that with each other. Persist. Endure. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Take this seriously, your sin. Yes, it demands God's grace. Yes, God must work. But I don't, I don't sit at the start line and go, Lord, I can't even see the finish line. This looks so hard. Just zap me from here to there. Just, just get me there because this is just too hard. Because that's not what he, he sets before us. He gives us the spirit and the word and all of the, 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 the wonderful means of common grace, community, the fellowship that we have. And he says, now run the race with endurance that's set out before you. Follow after your Savior and run. Fight the good fight. Battle sin. Deny the flesh. By all means, pray for God to do his work and plead with him to show his arm strong, but discipline yourself for godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. All right, let's read on into chapter 65. 63, 64, Isaiah, interceding on behalf of the people. Now God speaks and really the rest of the book, there's some descriptive pieces by Isaiah, but the rest of the book is God speaking now in response. Isaiah 50, uh, 65, I should say, verse one. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. It's talking Gentiles here, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And he goes on to speak about other violations of the Old Testament law. God says, so you, you wondered 
you, you would question, this is kind of God, almost in Job fashion, after Job has spoken and, and finishing Job by saying, let, let me answer your concerns and your objections here. And let me, let me give you some truth. So you've wondered where I was, whether I'm involved, am I just sitting back? Well, no. No, if you look, you will see that I stand before the nations constantly saying, here I am. Here I am. I hold out my hands to you. I call you to come to me and be saved. I call you to turn to me and find forgiveness. There's really two different groups of people in these verses. Verse 1 is God offering himself to the Gentiles because he says those who did not ask for me, those who did not seek me. And then he shifts in the next verse to those who are this rebellious people who, who seem to know what they should do and yet continue to provoke him. The, the, the point being, Isaiah, my, my, my long-suffering patience even toward the Gentiles stands in even greater judgment of you and your people who have seen all that you recounted. You have all the history. You, you have all the revelation. You have been delivered with the law. And, and even the Gentiles I have appealed to. And so that patience should tell me, should tell you, about the very judgment that your people face for rejecting me. And, and the, the way we're helped to understand this passage is Paul uses it in Romans 10. And Romans 10 is speaking about outreach with the gospel. It's about taking the, the gospel to the world, about proclaiming the gospel to, to Gentiles, about going beyond the Jewish people and, and, and essentially proclaiming to the world without distinction to Jew and to Gentile. And so Paul actually uses Isaiah 65 in Romans 10, verse 20. He says, Isaiah is so bold, he's speaking to, to, to some Jewish brethren at this point when he's talking about Gentiles here. He's so bold as to say, I have been found, and he, he translates this now into not only have I offered, but I have even found, because now Gentiles are coming in, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So you see the distinction Romans 10 makes that helps us back in Isaiah 65. Verse 1 is this people who, who didn't even know to seek me, who, who, who had a conscience that said, there is, there's something I see in creation, there is a God, and, and I must seek him ultimately. I must seek out whoever this creator is, and now they, they are being drawn to me. I am saving them, and it's his appeal to the nations. But verse 2, but of Israel, those who should have known better, he says, the Gentiles ultimately, by God's grace, are brought to Yahweh, but God also still holds out his hand to this disobedient and contrary people, as he describes there in Romans. And in fact, verses 4 and 5, just again, violations of God's law, ways that Jews are violating his holy law, and then he warns. This is where the, the appeals and the warnings, and this is just Hebrew poetry. There's sort of a circular, sometimes it feels like repetitive sort of motion to it. He's going to warn of judgment. Verse 6, behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent. I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. God judges unrighteousness. And God says all of the the, the moving away from the, the, the true worship of 
the true God in Jerusalem at the temple and this moving to idolatry and, and to following after, to, to, to whoring after the other nations and their gods, I will judge that. And he promises it. And yet, as we've seen over and over again in Isaiah, this, this, this cycle doesn't always stop there. There's, that's not God's intended last word, judgment. Instead, he then speaks of a remnant, verse 9. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah. Possessors of my mountains, my chosen, shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Again, the theme is judgment is, is real, it's serious, but it's, it's not all there is. I, I, I still am saving a people. I will preserve a line of offspring. My chosen will dwell in the land. So remember, I've said, here I am. Come to me. Come, repent and turn to me. And so verse 13 then continues this sort of cyclical declaration. Rescue for those God saving judgment for the rest to remain in rebellion. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. And down through verse 16, he continues this contrast. Those who, the remnant that worship him, that are rescued and saved, who turn to him, and those who uh, cry out in pain, even as he'll describe in that passage from his judgment. Those who are saved, those who remain in rebellion. And his, his point here is to, to take this all the way to this is the way it will be until Jesus returns. Because the last half of Isaiah 65 and the very last, almost last part, next to last part in chapter 66, both speak of a new heaven and a new earth. And it seems like an odd interjection at this point as he's talking about failure to obey and judgment. Those who turn to me and who are saved. And then all of a sudden he begins to speak of a new heaven and a new heavens and new earth. Verses 17 to 25 of Isaiah 65 describe this. Where the wolves and lambs graze together, people live long lives, they plant vineyards, none of their crops are lost or stolen. If you think all the way back to almost a year ago, we talked about end times, the millennium, the, the reign of Christ, and, and then the eternal state the reign of Christ being amongst his people on earth, a millennial reign. People will see that differently. I, I would contend Revelation 21 is giving a literal thousand-year period where Christ reigns on earth. Others would say it's the reign of Christ in the church. Either way, what we have in common is it's speaking of the reign of Christ on earth that precedes the new heavens and the new earth. The establishment of all that is new and all the evil is gone and that's the end. And that's that's why this passage is difficult, and commentators are all over the map on this last part of Isaiah 65, because it speaks, it, it seems to describe elements of both. It, it clearly says new heavens and new earth, but then you get to verse 20, and it says, no more shall there be in it, in this place, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And, and we pause at that point and say, that doesn't sound right. I don't expect that in the eternal state, that somebody dies at 100 years old or that there's a sinner who is accursed. Um, in the afterlife, in the eternal state, the, the life that comes after the, the millennial reign of Christ, there is no giving in marriage. There is no more birth, presumably, if there's no more giving in marriage at that point. There's, and yet, he says here, there's still death and sin. And so, as much as... 
we read some of this and say, new heavens, new earth, this must be the eternal state. It also seems what Isaiah is really doing is just sort of from 700 BC, giving a very compressed view of, of what we would de define as the end times. He's sort of running two things together, the millennial reign and the eternal state, and saying that there is a millennial kingdom here on earth. Jesus does rule. It will be a time of prosperity and longevity. But during that time, people will also be born and people will die. And there will be people who will be sinners and who will reject him. Creation will be largely delivered from the curse, but not completely, as when there are new heavens and new earth. All right. All of that is not the main point here. So don't go away saying, well, this was a whole millennial discussion. The, the main point in the context of what he's saying is there is coming an end to all this. this. This cycle of calling for repentance and of people rebelling and of saving a remnant out of that and more rebelling and judgment, all of that will end. And for Isaiah, this is, this is hard to fathom because this is now beyond the impending Babylonian captivity. This is past the servant who comes and gives himself as a sacrifice for sinners. This is, through Isaiah, God giving a glimpse of the consummation of history as we know it. And the point is this. What you do with God's word matters for eternity. How you respond to these appeals and to these warnings has eternal consequences. All of these contrasting promises of salvation and warnings of judgment are not figurative or hypothetical. God has decreed that one day the world as we know it will end and some will experience eternal blessing and peace. But Isaiah 66.3 says there are some who have chosen their own ways and whose souls delight in their abomination, and they will face the everlasting judgment of God. Friends, this is not, as, as some would do in, in sort of the so-called progressive movement in Christianity, we sort of want to move away from this God of judgment. We want to run to the, the God of the New Testament and, and try to say, well, this is, this is older, you know, and, and maybe somehow God softened his views on this thing. I'm telling you this is God's word. And so as sure as the promise of a new heaven and a new earth with no more weeping that he describes here, as sure as that is promised, so too is promised that there is eternal judgment, that many will go into eternity apart from their creator and they will be judged for their sin. And so he is bringing this to a climax by saying, appealing again to his listeners, how you respond to the word has eternal consequences. If you are a creature and you turn your back on your creator and you curse him and you mock him and you disobey his law, even if you do it just sort of passively, you think. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. This is not an easy picture. It's a picture of God's wrath. And it is, in fact, the very sentiment, the very truth that God ends the book of Isaiah on. 
The, the, just the end of days of this creation are described in verse 24 this way. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. For all of history, people have scorned the creator and have rebelled against his holy law. And there has been a creator who has said, here I am. I hold out my hands. I call you to turn to me and to trust in me. But if you will not, there will be judgment. God has warned over and over again that he will pour out his wrath on sin. And he, he did that in Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus experienced, it wasn't just the physical death, the, the cup that he wished to pass was the, the separation from the Father, was the wrath of the Father. It was the moment when the one who was sinless would experience our sin on him and would experience all of God's holy, righteous justice in his body, in that agony. And so that, that wrath is poured out in Jesus. And that's why he says, here am I, with hands that are nail-scarred, trust me, but if you will not understand the penalty of God's wrath, it will be satisfied. That's why God in his mercy says, I am here. That's why he holds out his hands. And so look back just for a moment, Isaiah 66, verse one. Just need to get this picture. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand is made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Mark that. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, as we've walked through the book of Isaiah, we have been brought face to face with the one who said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. He says, I made the earth and I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I declare the end from the beginning. My purposes shall stand. Those are just some of the statements we've seen in the book of Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You, you see a theme? So that when you come to 66.1 and he says, I rest on my throne in heaven and my feet rest on a footstool that is the earth. Last summer, when, when after NASA had launched its latest space telescope and it came online, already last summer, NASA saying, we are finding galaxies that are further out than we ever thought there were. They're, they're, they're light years more than what we thought. The, the galaxy's even larger than we thought it was. We, we can't, it's, it's hard to even quantify. And for as massive as this universe is, God says, it cannot contain me. I am greater. He made it all. He is transcendent. He is immense. He is powerful. He is beyond our comprehension. And so he says here, all things are made by my hand. They came into being by me. I, I, I spoke the word. I said, let there be light. And there it was. All of this incredible universe that you see. But this God who cannot be contained by this incredible creation that he's made mercifully says, but let me tell you, let me tell you what I regard. Let me, let me tell you what I look upon favorably. Th that verse, verse two, should grab our attention because we have seen in the book of Isaiah the word behold so many times. Look, 
see this. And so many of the times that we've seen, behold, it has been some command to look and see God or see some manifestation of God, some, some work of God, some judgment of God, some mercy of God. Look, see this. And now here is God saying, you know what I look at? You know how you are told to look up and see me? You know what I look for? I look for the person who humbly says, I can do nothing apart from you, God. I am entirely dependent on you. I, I've tried, but in and of myself, I bow before you. And not just as an external act of a bended knee, but as a, a very, that when he says contrite spirit, it is the very soul bowing before God and saying, I am utterly helpless before you. So what our society, so many people, why they reject God. I, I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be seen as somebody who's, who's needy. And, and that's what a, a humble and contrite spirit is. It is to say to God, all that I have and all that I am, the food, the drink, the life, the breath, the companionship, all that, it, it is from your gracious hand. And I owe it all to you. And I bow before you. You are my sovereign king. And wonder of wonders, God says, that's the man or woman I regard. I, I look favorably on that man or woman. He looks to the one who is deeply moved by his word, trembles at his word. He reads, she reads scripture and doesn't just see it as words on a page or as some kind of classic literature. He reads it and he hears in it the very voice of the sovereign creator of the universe, the king of all of creation, and hears it and says, I bow before this one because it moves me. It, it speaks to me. I, it, it should move me to action and, and to response. To disobey it would bring a sense of conviction. The one who trembles at my word. So, brothers and sisters, what are you doing with the Word of God? What are you doing as God speaks? How are you receiving it? Are you humble and are you dependent on Him? This is whom God looks upon. This is the one God regards. It's one last piece. I know we're late. We'll finish with this. We're going to end the book here. And it's the same place I showed you that archway at the beginning. The very bottom at the end mirrors the other side. End of chapter 66 reflects the beginning of 56. And what's going on at the beginning of 56? Miracle of miracles. The nations are streaming to the king. People from every nation are coming to the king. And when you get to Isaiah 66, 18, it says the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And verse 19 describes people from Tarshish and Egypt and Assyria and regions that we've already seen in Isaiah were lost. They were in darkness. They were idolaters. And the picture in verse 19 is all of these different, they, they look like odd geographic names to us. They are places that are in Egypt and Assyria and other areas that had been given over to idolatry. And God is saying, when that day comes, you will see every nation, every tongue, people from all of these tribes. In verse 20 of Isaiah 66 says, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And catch this, some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Imagine this. Gentiles from darkened lands where idols were made out of clay and worshipped. God is now moving and they are becoming servants of his. In fact, he is even bringing some into be as he describes it here, priests 
and Levites. This is shocking. If you are an ordinary Jew and you are hearing this from Isaiah's lips, this is like blasphemy. Wait a minute, the, you're going to bring people from there and they are going to become priests? These don't just enter the people of God as sort of secondary people. They are brought into the very line, the very family. God says, watch, I will do this. I will save people from the farthest ends of the world, and they will not become second-class citizens. They will become my servants and experience all the blessings of my promises. They will be the ones that I regard and the ones I look to. And friends, Jesus says it today. I am here. I hold out my hands to you. The hands that were nailed to the cross, I hold out to you. And I urge you to come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and turn from your sin and put your trust in me. With a humble and contrite spirit, come to me and surrender and trust in me. There is coming a day of ultimate glory for God's people and final judgment for his enemies. Are you, are you trusting in him? I know where Isaiah ends. We're going to end with verse 23. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you have promised a day coming when with the creation of a new heavens, new earth, evil will be banished, weeping will be gone, Death will be no more. And throughout the expanse of the new heavens and the new earth, you will be worshipped. Your light will light this kingdom. Your people will not grow weary. We will not tire of worshipping your goodness, of pondering your greatness, of seeing the one who is more immense than the universe that surrounds us. And now being those who would be your, your servants, your children, your worshipers. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning here or online who, who looks at these things and, and either hopes that maybe they won't come true, maybe they aren't real, or looks at them with a sense of despair, that they lack this hope, Lord, would you show them that there is this glorious Savior, your Son, who came and gave his life as a ransom for sinners, that the price for our sin we cannot pay. We cannot pay the debt we owe. But Jesus has done that. And if they will run to Jesus, there is life, and there is peace, and forgiveness, and joy. And Father, may we, your people who are trusting in you, may we again... Ask for your help from your spirit to be a people who would be humble before you, contrite in spirit, who would receive your word with awe, with reverence, who would ask frequently, repeatedly for your help to obey, but who would also run the race with endurance, who would take sin seriously, would confess it and turn from it, who would deny our flesh, and follow after Christ, all for your glory, all for your fame. And might you be pleased that in some small way, the, the vessel that is our lives would be a light that shines in the darkness and points people to Jesus Christ, the Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.